The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we do a deep dive into subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, you'll get to hear the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share an interview with Zach Scheel. Zach Scheel is the CEO of Roombix, a data-driven construction technology startup. Zach told us why building costs so much and how companies like Roombix are working to bring down costs by eliminating waste. We also talked about how smart cities and how robotics will impact construction processes. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Zach, super excited to have you on talking about The Future of Cities. How's it going? It's going well. So here's one of the reasons why I'm excited about this interview. Not only do I know Zach already because he's a military veteran like myself, but also Zach is working on a problem that is, we'll just say a trillion dollar problem. And his company, Rumbix, is really interesting for a lot of ways. We're going to dive into a bunch of that stuff in this episode. But we're also going to dive into what is the state of construction, cities, and all that stuff from the way that they look at it. And then how is this all going to change over the next 50 years? So let's get into it. So what's the scope of kind of like your work and your responsibilities at Rumbix? So as CEO, I've had a lot of different hats and jobs as we, we've grown from just my co-founder, Drew, and myself to we're now at 40 people. Right now, I'm really involved, obviously, with fundraising and financing, but also in a lot of our external facing uh, engagements. So thought leadership at conferences, working with our customers, really getting out there in the field and really understanding the problem, the first person, so that I can bring all, all that I see and hear out in the field back to the office and make sure that we're building the right product for the industry. All right, Zach, could you share what is Rumbix and what are you working on? Yes, Rumbix is a um, mobile cloud platform that really helps builders go paperless in the field. So we essentially replace paper and Excel, which run rampant through project sites. We've got a uh, custom form schema that digitizes data entry in the field from timekeeping, payroll processing, production tracking, daily reports, time and materials tracking, and then all that data is then used to power traditional workflows in the construction industry. So we really help companies better understand, especially trends that are driving gains or losses in labor productivity on job sites. And you allow contractors to essentially just see themselves better, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when I was working in the industry, I would do this job manually in Excel. It's a very tedious, labor-intensive process to get the data that you need in a timely enough manner to be able to make decisions that actually change impacts on the job site. By digitizing through mobile data capture, the information is available immediately and uh, decisions can be made day of that change behaviors the following day to actually drive impacts on performance on job sites. So on the job site, are there people walking around with you know, a little Rumbix tracker in their pocket that follows their movement? Like, what does that look like? So we, we only do the real-time location sensing on uh, kind of select professional services engagements. The traditional deployment is the foreman is using the Rumbix app and whatever pieces of paper he or she otherwise would have had to complete on a daily or weekly basis, they're just doing it through the app and saving on average two to four hours a week. And, you know, being able to give the foreman, who arguably is the most important person on the job site in terms of improving project outcomes, 10% more time in his or her week is really driving gains out there in the field. 
Awesome. And what type of companies are you working with? So we're working with seven of the top 20 general contractors and EPC firms in the United States and four of the top 10 subcontractors. So when you first started the company, you saw this kind of big problem, obviously from your time in the military and your time as civilian, and you were looking at this kind of gigantic problem. Could you diagram like what was the problem that you saw and how big was this issue? Yeah. So in, in the summer of 2013, I was working at a copper mine in northern Chile. The project was a large copper concentrator. It had uh, 7,000 to 8,000 workers on the job site. I was part of the project controls team that was trying to manage budget. And we relied on data from the job site every day. We received that data in the form of a thousand paper time cards with handwritten notes about what workers did what work and how much of it they did. It would take three to four days for that information to be manually put into Excel. Then it was sent to an access database where me and the project controls team would analyze it. We would spend 80% of the next week auditing the data because it was mostly incorrect and about 20% of the time analyzing it for insights to have a once a week meeting with two week old data. That three and a half billion dollar project went $900 million over budget. And that was just one project. I think that does a good job of quantifying the size of the problem. So how many, how many projects that are out there? And when, when we're talking about like a construction project, could you, I guess just diagram like what's the type of project that you all are, are working on now? So Rumbix is, is used by anyone that has self-perform or direct hire labor on job sites. So our, our smallest company has, I think, 20 laborers out in the field. Our largest customer has 7,000 workers out in the field. So really, we, we scan a, a wide breadth of project size and type. And so looking at the construction industry, though, McKinsey's done some great reports on specifically mega projects. So projects over a billion dollars. The statistics are 98% of them are either late or over budget. The average cost increase is 80% of original value, and the average slippage is 20 months behind the original schedule. That is remarkable. So you're talking about these type of projects are happening in big cities all over the country, I mean, all over the world, and we're talking about 98% are over budget and late. I mean, Transbay Terminal right down the road, classic example. Apple campus. I think it was uh, double the original budget, the final construction cost. That is remarkable. And so how much waste goes into a project? So there's, it really depends on how you measure it. Uh, the Construction Industry Institute has done a lot of studies and, and they define time on tools or bench time as uh, a worker is at the work face with the right materials, equipment, approvals that he or she needs to, to do the work. They estimate that on average, workers are about 33% of their time is spent on tool time. So, you know, in a nine hour day, you're getting three hours of direct work and, and six hours is spent chasing down materials, chasing down drawings, approvals, coordinating, sitting through meetings and, and all of that inefficiency is things that can be automated with better technology. And so when you're talking about that type of, you know, employee time waste, it also is in a lot of times taxpayer waste. It's dollars that are not being allocated towards other things that we need that are critical towards cities? Absolutely, especially within public works. I think every city in America is, is underfunded in terms of the list of projects and infrastructure improvements that they would like to do. And a large part of that is driven by the high cost of construction. What do you think that citizens that are walking by a place every single day, a construction site, that are seeing it seeing those things up. I mean, like, what do you think is the impact over time of just all of these construction projects that are not just driven by, because like, and I guess I could, I, I should say, we have the cost that to the developer or 
to the project that that's cost out the door. But what about the time of how much traffic and congestion things like that cause? How much I hate to say an eyesore, but obviously you know it's not not ideal to have those sort of things. Like, what are the additional costs to slow construction to like the everyday person? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have quantifiable numbers on the impact, but uh, qualitatively or anecdotally, it's huge. Transbay terminals got four city blocks that are torn up. A uh, huge impact to traffic because if you ever try to drive to the East Bay anytime after 2 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, it'll take you three hours to get over there. Massive construction projects are massively disruptive because they require a laydown area, access, egress, especially when they're in the middle of city centers. It's a huge impact economically in terms of just people getting to and from work and, and businesses operating in normally. What about from the safety perspective? Like what is, obviously there's like the citizen safety, but also like safety on the job site. Like how does being able to see what's going on impact safety? Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., we still kill three people a day on job sites. And, and so the goal is, is zero fatalities. And the more that we're able to collect data and information to understand what's leading to accidents and incidents and fatalities, the better we're able to create systems that can have you know, predictive analytics, for instance, to indicate that a project is at a higher level of risk to be able to potentially have somebody go and do a safety stand down, go and talk to all the workers. And so uh, really better understanding what's driving all these accidents is, is what's needed. Do you think that from a sustainability standpoint, do you think that like people are thinking about this in any way, like the sustainability of construction projects, or is it kind of just that like one-off mentality that every project is its own unique project? So therefore, you know, there's not really a lot of like learning from project to project. Yeah, I mean, I mean, two separate issues on the sustainability front. There are definitely efforts that are going into helping create incentives for more sustainable construction sites. I had the good fortune of managing construction out of barracks in Everett, Washington. That was the Navy's first LEED gold certified building. And we diverted 98% of the waste stream away from the landfill. You know, LEED is a system, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, put on by the U.S. Green Building Council. And so there are good programs in place to try to incentivize that. But as you kind of mentioned, if we had actually prefabricated that building, we could have, you know, reduced the, that, that total waste by half by just moving to more of a manufacturing production system than the way we currently build, which is a very one-off, let's design this building anew and then go build it. And then we'll design the next one anew and, and go build that. Yeah. So what are you seeing from like, how is Rumbix working with like prefab and all that sort of stuff? Like, what are you seeing in, in the kind of like overall industry trends towards those? Yeah. So we, we measure production and productivity on job sites and are helping companies understand and, and better manage and measure it so that they can know where they have best practices, which crew is doing this work task more or less efficiently. Do I have some best practices that I didn't know about that I can identify and then scale throughout uh, my company? And so we, we assist in really just the unstructured chaos of everyday job site, really understanding production unit rates. But what I'm seeing is definitely a strong move towards prefabrication in the building industry. A lot of the subcontractors doing multi-trade prefab where you've got your electrical and mechanicals throwing their, um, you know, their conduit runs and utilities on the same rack that will be installed at once and is manufactured offsite. So that's where you're really going to, to realize significant savings because you no longer have to coordinate access for the electrical contractor than access for the mechanical contractor. They're both able to do the work, sequence in a controlled area offsite, and then bring that final assembly in and just lift it up and attach it to the ceiling. It's kind of almost too easy, right? It's kind of like you like you think about it and you're like, hey, you know, the idea that I'm going to be 
constructing all of this stuff in a warehouse in a controlled environment, not in the uh, not in the elements, and then we could come onto the you know job site and do it potentially exponentially faster. I mean, like how much faster is using things like prefabrication when you're actually on the job site? So we did a, a study with Skanska where we helped them baseline and benchmark stick-built bathroom pods in a hospital in Riverside, California versus prefabrication. So the first unit that we measured, stick-built, took four workers 58 hours to, to build that bathroom pod. The first unit that we prefab took those same four workers 32 hours. Over the period of the next 20 weeks, we basically wired them up and we're tracking their location in real time and uh, gave them feedback every day, showed them their, their quote-unquote game tape. And that led to conversations about how they could improve process flow, rearrange layout within the prefab area. And by the end of 20 weeks, that same bathroom pod that once took four workers 58 hours, we were able to complete with two workers taking seven hours and 15 minutes. So it was an 88% reduction in task duration. That is awesome. God, that's so cool. I mean, it's like one of those those things where it's like, you know, you take a step back and realize that it probably took four workers 58 hours in 1907. Yeah. And we're building the same way we build the pyramids, more or less. Any other kind of like examples or things like that that you have of other other type of projects where just the transparency aspect and just being able to see what we've been doing and a historical look at data, like leveraging data that has been kind of seen similar results? Yeah, we actually just launched on a new project with Skanska right here at UCSF Mission Bay. And one of the things that that historically has really held back the industry is it's, it's a there's a ton of stakeholders on any project site, hundreds. The contract structures historically have really incentivized everyone to maximize their own profits, even if that's preventing the better benefit of the project as a whole. You know, for the example, you know, a drywall or a mechanical guy, an electrical guy, the mechanical guy might run his pipes right through where the electrical guy was supposed to because he got there first. And then you end up with all this headbutting and and inefficiency. And so on this job at UCSF, they've got what's called integrated form of agreement. So the major trade contractors, mechanical, electrical, piping, and drywall all have a shared profit pool that if they all come in under the the budgeted amount, they get to share that profit across all of them. So we are um, using our system to track production unit rates across all those trade contractors and show them every day their shared savings. And so unique contractual structures are are something that we're seeing more and more of right now, primarily in the healthcare space. But um, I think they're a powerful way to better align incentives to push forward productivity in the industry. When we talk to Lyft about self-driving cars and the idea that you can essentially get to a point where there's enough scale of data that you're actually informing the city of what the trends are. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you think as you get more and more data from the job sites and more and more data from your customers what do you think the impact of like, what is that kind of tipping point where you're saying, I mean, I'm sure you're probably already doing, being able yeah. to do this now, but do you think there's a tipping point where you're like, we can actually look at things in such a detailed way with weather, with like, you know, there's, there's potentially times like across city, across country, you know, in other parts of the world where you could take best practices that are being used in San Francisco, use them in Nairobi and kind of leverage, like leverage the Rumbix network to be able to affect like different customers? Yeah, no, I I think there's tremendous opportunity uh, for predictive analytics that are able to help construction managers better see problems that are coming down the pipeline 
that they wouldn't otherwise know. Good example of this on, on that project that we did in Riverside with Skanska, we were tracking the production unit rates of the electrical team and the drywallers. And we knew that in a matter of a week and a half, they were going to cross paths and that the electrical team was going to show up before there were any studs to run their conduit through. And so trade stacking is something that's very common uh, in the construction industry because of how fragmented and undigitized everything is, where you got two trades showing up to work in the same spot at the same time. And then one of them is just ends up you know, going home. The, the owner, GC, is paying for that. So the big thing that the industry is going through right now is digital transformation. And that is necessary to lay a foundation for machine learning and predictive analytics that help us better ingest massive amounts of data, both worker input data, but also passively collected data, a lot of proliferation of sensors, bring the internet of things to job sites. And only then when we have good, accurate data, are we able to build the predictive models that help us better understand the factors that are leading to delays and causing a lot of these schedule overruns and budget overruns as well. Is there any like historical data of this sort of stuff? What is what is like the data set look like before technology versus now? Like what is there anything like historical data that we could pull any trends from? I'd say we're still pre-technology in the construction industry. They're they're going through a digital transformation. But if you look at there was a professor at Stanford that did a study and and it literally compared the construction industry to all S, all US non-farm industries. And we've actually been declining in productivity over the last 60 years <laughs> versus the the 17 cross-industry average of 17 other non-farm industries had an average of 3.7% year-over-year compound growth. The construction industry had negative 0.7% over that same period of time. That's remarkable. Gosh, that's crazy. What do you think that, back to kind of some of the smart cities piece mm-hmm. and kind of IoT and connectedness, What do you think that the other uses for this on the construction site lead to increases of productivity? Like how does just being able to see everything in real time allow us to to kind of, or allow, I guess, your customers, but really just like allow us to see how interconnected things play in the city. For example, if we could be predictive with the fact that, you know, Dreamforce is coming to town, right? It's like, how do we show that, okay, well, if we have like potentially the ability to leverage data from Rumbix, from Lyft, from multiple other different sources and say, hey, if all these things are happening in the same time, then we should know X, Y, or Z. Like, Yeah, I mean, I I think the um, technology and how you would use it is immediately transferable between the two. You better understand, you know, where the inefficiencies are so that you can avoid them on the next project. You better understand the actual costs so that you can better have contractors estimate the follow-on project. I think, you know, we've looked at worker movement in active construction sites, Airbnb. We worked as a lot of analyzing where people are within their spaces so that they can optimize the future layout of all um, buildings that they're designing so that they can maximize you know the revenue that they're getting out of it maximize the experience of the occupants uh, of that facility and so i think uh, really with a lot of these older industries and, and construction and and operation and maintenance of facilities are, are two of the most antiquated once you begin to have the better the digital data you can begin to analyze it and i think we'll find opportunities for improvement that we never knew existed so for the future of cities like what do you think that this looks like in 50 years? I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Chesky's like 11 star experience. Have you ever heard this I thing? Have not heard it. Oh, it's really good. So I'll, I'll give it to you really quick. So basically, what he had his teams do were when they were rolling out experiences, like 
what's a what's a one star experience for an Airbnb is like you know you show up and like their bed's not made. Well, it's like what's a three star experience? What's a so what's a five star? It's like five, you show up. A wakeboard is sitting there because you want to go wakeboarding. You know, there's your favorite food from Whole Foods is in the fridge ready to go. And he's like, well, what's a six star? And so he goes all the way up to like 11 stars with basically the idea that you get off your private jet, you sit down, you walk immediately on stage with like Bono and you perform (laughs) with him in front of like however many people and there's a parade in your honor. He's like, once you do that, it's like you walk back from that and you're like, I guess having a wakeboard isn't that hard. So I guess what's kind of the... What's the 11 star experience for the construction industry? Like, what's the thing that in the future is so powerful that it's like we completely relook how we're how we're creating these things? I think robotics will play a large role in, in the future of how we build. There's starting to be some robots coming out to the the job site to assist in things like carrying heavy loads and stuff. But I think as the industry looks to move more towards manufacturing, I think the construction industry will look like a production assembly line, prefabrication offsite of all building components, and then putting them together like Lego blocks on site. I think the more interesting thing is when you look at the construction costs, it's about 10% of the total life cycle costs of that facility. 80 to 90% is in the operation, maintenance, and decommission of that facility. And that's where I think there's a huge opportunity to better understand how people interact with facilities. And this is where things like sensors come into play, really understand who's where, what amount of power do they need to use, what do they have plugged into the walls so that we're better able to design buildings to be more efficient for occupation. Because in the grand scheme of uh, the total cost of the life cycle of the facility, the construction portion of it is, is, is relatively minor compared to that next 40, 50 year useful lifetime of, of operations and maintenance. We interviewed the CEO of Yair Healthcare, Grant Geiger, and he's talking about like modularization when it comes to hospitals, mm-hmm. that the idea that you don't necessarily need a gigantic hospital anymore. You could have smaller hospitals that are spread throughout these like mega cities. Yeah. The idea that like mega cities are going to, like cities are going to continue to grow and mega cities are, are going to continue to happen. We're already seeing some of that in cities like Charlotte and these places that are 800,000 people already, and they're going to grow and grow. But specifically with looking at things like healthcare, where part of the big problem with hospitals is that you can't add on. So it's like they add, they want to add on to these hospitals and it's like, you know, Highland hospitals, both in like 1917 or whatever it is. So there's just no ability to add on, but with modularization, it's like you can add on a wing in two years and that wing you can add on in six months rather than kind of like the old model. And, and instead of having the hospital be different sections that were built decades apart and everything like doesn't kind of fit, you can actually build in a modular way. Like, Talk about how buildings in general and like that kind of modularization of not only them building them, but adding on that we can build things that we can improve over time rather than just like, all right, this is sitting here and this is going to be good for a hundred years until it crumbles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a difficult challenge because in parallel, there's tremendous advancements in material science that are happening and when you spend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to build something, you're typically building it for, you know, a 50, 60, 70 year lifetime with advances right now. And, you know, like machine learning, driving material science is coming up with new concrete admixtures, new synthetic materials. You've got, you know, view dynamic glass that you can use your smartphone to adjust the um, tent of your window and, and control how much light passes through, which ultimately can impact the size of the HVAC unit you need on the, the, the rooftop to service that building. It's very tough, but I think, you know, as more companies are looking at modularization, that's definitely something that they need to consider is how do we build now to easily be able to expand and add on in the future. So let's 
talk more about the smart building, mm-hmm. like the the smartest building that's out there, and even look forward a little bit. Like, talk to me about what that what that feels like. Like when you walk in, you know, like what does this kind of new age thing? What could every building feel like in the not too distant future? I mean, I think there's a high degree of possibility for us to really personalize the experience of your interaction with the building. And that's, you know, you're, you're coming in, <clears throat> you're not having to go through keys on a keychain or which key fob do I have? You've got a smartphone or biometric sensors that know who you are. The door's unlocked. You walk in, you go to your workstation, things are all powered on. You may only have task lighting on where you are. You're able to set and control the temperature that, that you want it to be. There's a lot of like raised floors that you're able to put individual temperature controls in, in like an office setting. So I know the thermostat on the wall over there is frequently going between 68 to 72, depending on where people are sitting in the office and how much sun is shining through the windows right there. And so I think the buildings of the future will have a lot better ability for the individuals inside them to personalize their experience inside that building or for that building to be smart enough to know it's them and to adjust to um, accommodate that person's preferences. And like more, I mean, you're also talking about more light, more natural light, more building spaces where you have like elements of the natural world. You're talking like all of those sort of things where it's like, it will not feel like you're in a concrete jungle. It'll oh, yeah. feel like you're some somewhere that is, you know, not locked inside of a... Oh yeah, no, there's, there's research out already that shows lead gold and lead platinum buildings have less absenteeism than more traditional office spaces. Indoor environmental quality is huge. If you've ever been at an old basement of an engineering building on a university trying to study versus a brand new facility with lots of natural daylighting, it's just a much more pleasant, enjoyable experience that makes whatever you're doing a lot more enjoyable. And so I think with moves towards net zero buildings and and really better understanding how this impacts a worker, individual worker's productivity, there's going to be a strong economic case for every building to move to maximize the indoor environmental quality and experience of the occupants. Let's talk for a second about sustainability. And, you know, we've touched on in the podcast about the sustainability of actual materials on the projects. And we've touched on the sustainability from the standpoint of like trying to get something that's within the the guidelines or the limits of whatever that city, that particular city is creating. And then also we've talked about what's called like redlined materials and things like that, where, you know, certain projects are saying, hey, I don't want to work with this material. Let's talk about the sustainability from just like an overall construction site standpoint. How does Rumbix help with sustainability? Yeah, so we're, we're focused on improving labor productivity on job sites. And when you improve labor productivity, you're compressing schedules. And the net result of that is reducing the carbon footprint of a large industrial construction site where you've got a ton of equipment. Like we talked about earlier, you've got impact to city operations that cause more traffic jams. And so... Building more efficiently has a lot of secondary impacts on sustainability to uh, cities and, and the environment as a whole. So you could think about it like, and what, what's the percentage that basically like before and after using Remix, like how much time is saved per, per project? So we haven't done a full site-wide deployment yet, but we estimate we could compress the schedule 10 to 15% on a full site-wide deployment. Okay. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Well, fantasy football will be starting up here in a little bit. That's true. (laughs) It'll probably be fantasy football here in about uh, three weeks. (laughs) 
I'm not ready for it. What's your favorite time-saving tool? Favorite time-saving tool? Probably Google Calendar. Um, Gosh, so many people have said that. (laughs) I uh, manage my day very precisely, and Google Calendar really helps with that. We need like a little bit more AI. We just need <laughs> we like do, a yeah. little bit more AI. You yeah. need to, if they, if they can start pulling stuff out of my email and putting it on the calendar, we're we're really close. Yeah. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? Duke basketball, Stanford football. Uh, those are my teams. My two alma maters. Nice. Okay. Favorite podcast. So I listen to a podcast called The Contact Crew, which is a construction technology podcast that oh, yeah. probably not a ton of people outside the industry listen to, but does a great job of capturing weekly news and has uh, interesting speakers every week. Favorite book you've read recently? The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. It's all about the concept of flow states and hacking flow in your everyday life. Interesting. I don't know that one. Favorite show you're watching? I do not watch a lot of TV. Chef's Table was good. Finished that recently, but I, I don't watch a lot of shows. Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? Probably wine country or Tahoe. Yeah. <laughs> depending on depending on the time of year. <laughs> Can't be Tahoe. Favorite city? Oh, that's a good one. I love San Francisco. I mean, I uh, have no plans of leaving here any, anytime soon. But yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed my time in Seattle as well. And then as you've probably been through lots of parts of the world with the military, find little cool cities here and there that you just fall in love with. What makes a city great? I think it's its people. People, community, you know, I've, I've met some of the happiest people on the planet and some of the most remote cities on, on the planet. And I think at the end of the day, it's really the, the community and the people that make a city great. What's going to be the biggest change in future cities? I think autonomous vehicles and likely autonomous drones that carry humans is, is going to be the, the biggest change in, in the next 50 years. I mean, it completely changes how you design cities, how you utilize space in cities, how you get to work, you know, you can eliminate the dreaded commute or at least make it more productive. So I think, you know, hands down, autonomous vehicles are going to change cities the most. Technology that you're most excited about? I think 3D printing is pretty cool. I think autonomous drones also. I'd love to be able to fly to work. (laughs) The one, the the drone that I saw where it can get like facial recognition and then follow you and you're just like... (laughs) We've arrived. We have. Yeah, I love it. That's lighting around. Awesome. Fast and easy. Hey, Zach, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. And best luck in the future. Thanks for having me, Ian. Always a pleasure. Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.